Hello, everybody. This is Bill Knauer, and you're listening to Author to Author, where we talk about writing and life, because what it takes to write the book you want to write is also what it takes to lead the life you want to lead. Author to Author is brought to you by Author Magazine, premier free writing magazine on the internet featuring articles on writing and the writing life, as well as video and audio interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors across the genre is my conversation with Mr. Terry Brooks, legendary fantasy author of the Shannara series. It's up there. That was a good one. Man, I read sort of Shannara. I learned from him. That's how it's pronounced. I didn't pronounce it that way for 40 years, but I read it when I was 12 years old. The year it came out. Oh, and then I got to have a conversation with him 40 years later. How cool is that? Very cool. That's how cool. And it's up there, and it's a good one. So check it out, authormagazine.org. We're also funded by the wonderful Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They've been supporting writers from pen to publication since 1955. Yes, they have. And they, well, they host just one of the best writers' conferences in the country every year. This year, I'm sure, is going to be no different. takes place... Second week in September, second weekend in September, I believe. You know, let me just check that. We're getting close, right? Uh, well, well, yes, the second, 13th, 14th, 15th, like that. So, uh, yes, so, and it's a great conference. Uh, lots of agents and editors. We've got Donald Moss, Christopher Vogler coming up to do uh, masterclass workshops. You name it, the PNWA conference offers it. I encourage you, there's still space in the conference, just about a month away now. I encourage you to check it out at pnwa.org. Speaking of conferences, I want to thank the people who hosted me down in Portland at the big Willamette Writers Conference. What a great conference. Got to meet There's lots of people from television and film. I'm usually rubbing elbows with novelists and memoirs, which I love, but there's a lot of film and television people down there. Very cool. Got to teach uh, fearless marketing, how to give a killer keynote. I want to thank Kate Ristow for hosting me. Fabulous host. I got to meet, well, I got to meet some people I haven't met face-to-face, but they were there. Gail Brandeis, you've listened to the show. You've heard her. We finally got to meet. It was a lot of fun. Thank you all very much. And I will be in New York City this weekend. Yes, this very weekend, teaching at the Writers Digest yearly conference. It's a big one. I'll be there doing fearless writing fearless marketing, and just basically talking to people about writing, because that's what I do. Okay, speaking of talking to writers, let's do it. Let's talk to Dan Festerman. Oh, I was glad I got him on. He's a best-selling suspense writer who, who began, I believe, as a journalist, and his travels as a writer took him to 30 countries and three war zones beginning with the Persian Gulf War in 1991. Yikes. His novels, however, of uh, intrigue, have captured acclaim in 11 different languages while winning a Dashiell Hammett Award in the United States and two Dagger Awards in the United Kingdom. His latest book, and it's a good one, is called Safe Houses. Dan, Dan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. Well, it's good to have you on. It's good to have it. Sounds like, uh, are you still a globetrotter or are you, have you hunkered down a little bit now that you're a novelist? Uh, I've hunkered down a bit. Uh, my book touring is over. I went to the Outer Banks with my family last week and promptly broke my collarbone, so I'm oh. hunkered down for that reason oh. as well. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> oh, God. 
All right. Well, so you're 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 a gimpy novelist, but writers, the beautiful, there's really, you know, uh, like playing professional sports. There's really no reason you can't write when you're. There's really no injury practically that can keep us from doing our job, is there? That's true. I just put my keyboard in my lap and uh, my uh, left hand on the broken wing. I just kind of fiddle along with that one. Oh, good for you. All right. So but, you know, let's back up a little bit. It is an interesting biography you offer us, brief though it is. Uh, it was uh, you, you traveled around as a, a journalist, yeah? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And, and so do you miss it? Do you miss the, the action of it? What do you think uh, about that? I miss the travels, and uh, that's I do miss the travels, and I'll miss even more uh, traveling on somebody else's dime. So uh, <laughs> when I do my own research these days, I pick up the tab. So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I miss that part. But I also miss the entree that it gives you. Uh, people are yeah. a little more skeptical when you say I'm a novelist doing research. When you have a newspaper yeah. backing, you have a little more credibility, and it's usually easier to get into places that you're not supposed to get into. Who do you write for? Primarily, I wrote primarily for the Baltimore Sun for more than 20 yeah. years, and I was yeah. the Berlin bureau chief, and I did a lot of other spot assignments in Afghanistan and the Middle East and places like that. What was uh, – I promise you were going to get to the novels, but I'm just a little curious about what you – were you – when you said it took you to three wars, so you were reporting on the wars themselves. Were you a correspondent sort of relatively close to the front lines? Correct. I, I, uh, when I first went to the uh, Persian Gulf War, I was in Jordan for about six weeks, and then I went over to Saudi Arabia just before the ground war started, and yeah. another uh, journalist and I ended up riding in as a unilateral, not in a press pool, and uh, we went out across the desert together and hooked up with some Egyptian and Syrian armies and uh, divisions and went into Kuwait City that way. So. Wow. Well, and you know, I so that I've never the closest I've ever come to war is hearing my veteran friends talk to me about it. Uh, and does that um, do you feel like it changed you? I mean, just in terms of help making you, I don't, I guess, grow up is the only. I'm sure you were plenty grown up, but it, it's a, it, it, it seems like a, um, it adds another level to your perception of what it is to be alive on planet Earth when you've seen that kind of stuff up front. Yeah, it does, and I think it also adds to your understanding of how uh, awful people can be and <laughs> yeah, how magnificent yeah. they can be. Uh, and, and when you're in war zones, it, it pushes people to their extremes, and it forces people to make choices that they never thought they'd have to make, and it brings out, as a result, the absolute best and the absolute worst. You you kind of uh, winnow people out and find out who's got what it takes to you know, yeah. you know know still have character and under stress and who doesn't. I'm reminded of there's a there's a documentary by Ken Burns called The War, which is about World War II. Have you ever seen it? Yes, yes, I've okay. seen lots of it. Yeah. So there's one part that struck me particularly, and that was when this uh, American uh, man who had been a uh, bomber flying out of London, and so he was flying these these runs over Germany, and he had been an engineer or something with a with a uh, with a fiance back home. So he wasn't a writer. He was just a, a man who was doing his duty for his country until he went back to resume his life. But it was he was writing these letters that were like, "Oh, honey, everything's great. God, they feed us so much. I can't believe it." Because he, he was a he was a he was a he was genteel. He was chivalrous. He didn't want to frighten his wife. But there reached a moment where he couldn't bear it anymore, and he had to write a letter about what it was actually like about facing death every day and seeing his bombs drop on people and knowing his bombs were killing people and seeing his friends die. 
And so he read this letter he wrote. And the reason I mention it is if you had told me if this was the, the writings of a professional memoirist describing war, I would have believed you. It was so evocative and profound and honest and bare. And, but it was just a guy who the war had pushed him to his edge and even his creative edge. And I thought life can make writers of us all for a moment if, if it allows it. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does, because when you're in war zones, you find that you're sort of on sensory overload. You notice things that you wouldn't notice otherwise because you have to. You have to be on your toes a lot, uh, whether yeah. you're near a illegal checkpoint or whether you're near a combat zone. Even when you're not in a combat zone, you're seeing such strange things that you're always kind of keyed up and writing things in your notebook. So, yeah, I, I see a lot of that. Uh, it, it definitely tunes you into life a little more sharply. All right, so you were having this career as a journalist, traveling the world, seeing a lot of crazy stuff. But at some point you said, I want to write a novel. And uh, so my first question is, did you always want to write novels? Or is that something that occurred to you in the middle of your journalism career? I think it was always in the back of my mind. It wasn't one of those things I ever talked about or wrote down or mentioned to anyone, like, I always want to do this. But I Uh think in the back of my mind, I always wanted to give it a try. But I think I never mentioned it because I always wondered if I could ever actually finish one that I started. And that was All the biggest right. hurdle. And when I came Finishing. back from uh when I came back from my first trip to Bosnia when I was covering the siege in Sarajevo after my first trip there where I went to do stories on everyday life and people coping and even what uh detectives and uh journalists and uh and lawyers were doing in the middle of this kind of a war. Uh, I came back and I got an idea for a novel. And for some reason, the minute I got the idea, I knew how I wanted to finish it, and I knew that I could finish it. Uh, and once I cleared wow. that hurdle, I w- it was a whole lot easier to get started. Uh, Interesting. Think, so, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I think well, I, gonna... I think a, what holds back a lot of people who think they would like to try a novel is the same thing. And I think it's because we think of this. Uh, this institution of the novel is something like yeah. Mount Everest, and we think, can we ever climb <laughs> yeah. it? And right. when what we should be doing is thinking about it as a series of day hikes. It's like, all right, yeah. today I'm, yeah. I'm going to walk five miles. Maybe I'll walk ten. Maybe tomorrow yeah. I'll be tired and I'll walk two. But as long as you get some walking in, uh, at the end of a week, you know, maybe you've got a hundred miles. At the end of a yeah. month, uh, you know, and you start thinking that in terms of pages and it builds slowly, but if you don't think of it as this one huge mountain you have to scale, uh, it's a lot easier to deal with mentally. Yeah, you know, one of the things I, when I wrote my first novel, I, it, what it, one of the first things I learned, first I learned that, which is that if I was there every day, I'd written things like plays and sketch comedy, but they're always shorter things, whereas yeah. the novel, you know, it's you're looking at minimum three or four months just for the first draft. Yeah, know? yeah. And But I really made this discipline of writing every morning for a couple hours, and I was like, by God, if you put down 2,000 words or something or 1,500 words every day, you do, yeah. in fact... It's so axiomatic, but it's but it is kind of miraculous in this way. You have to. It's not that complicated. That that's true. That's true. And, and I but, think you have to like the material better too, because yeah, you know, like if if you're doing <laughs> a say a one hour television script, that's maybe yeah. sixty skimpy pages. And right. even if you're not in love with it, you're going to be done in about a month or so. And now a novel, if if you no. get down the road and you decide <clears throat> you're not really enamored with it, you're in big trouble. Yes, 
It's like a marriage. I liken it yeah. to a marriage in that you better love each other because you're going to get into an argument. There's going to be a yeah. part in that book where you're going to be in an argument with it, I suspect. And if you don't yeah. love the material and really believe in it, you'll break up with it. Yeah, yeah, inevitable. and your characters, you, you better like their company. So, you know. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so, all right, you went from journalism to fiction. Uh, were you surprised by what you just described to me, that, that the characters, you are, they are sort of like company. They're not just these little pawns you're moving around the board, but they have their own ideas, I guess you could say. Did, did, did that surprise you, or did you just say, oh, this is cool? I guess it surprised me to an extent. I guess I, I was approaching it as a reader, too, and I knew that when I was reading a novel, I was certainly felt like I was in close company with these people, right. and that would cause me to either keep reading or put the book down. So I had an inkling of it, but uh, what surprised me was how much, especially the deeper I got or get into a book, uh, is how much they kind of take possession of me and will wake me up at 3 in the morning with lines of dialogue uh, or yeah. solutions to little problems they have, and I realize I've got a you know, run to the other room and write that down then, or it's going to be gone in the morning. So. And once you start, all right, so the first book, wait a minute, this is book 11, yeah? That you That's published. right. I don't know if you've written other, okay, so the first book, I don't know if you list them, is the letter writer your first book, or is it Lie in the Dark? Lie in the Dark is the, okay. is the first one, yeah. It's your first novel. Okay, so Lie in the Dark. So you get this idea, and you know you can finish it, and it's a big deal. Uh, and so now you're in, da, 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 you're going along, and da, at some point, because this has happened, I work with clients who have a lot of, they they want me to help them not just with their craft, but also just the emotional challenges of being a writer, which I think are significant. Right. Yeah. But once they kind of overcome those challenges and they start really getting into the work, they often start hating their jobs right away. And so did <laughs> you, once you started, once you like saw the pleasure in novel writing, did you immediately want out of journalism or is it just like, well, let's see how it goes and whatever happens, happens? No, I did not because I was still a foreign correspondent at the time and uh, I was still getting, even when I came back to the U.S. and had a job in Baltimore uh, at the Sun, I still was getting a lot of trap. Uh, I was getting a fair amount of travel assignments and whatnot. Right. So I liked it, but I, I did have it on my mind that, okay, this I am shooting for trying to do this full time. Oh. I did enjoy oh, it. Oh, right away. Yeah, so, because uh, oh. it. The hard part about it was you're using the same part of your brain often or close right. to the same part because, uh, you know, even in journalism, you're trying to figure out human character. You're trying to figure out right. what makes people tick. And you're doing that with your own characters and you're writing, you're using the language. So I would, my routine, when I wrote my first three novels while also being a journalist, and my uh -huh. routine was pretty much I'd get up at uh, a little before six. I'd write, uh, I'd be writing by 6.15, which was not easy because I was not traditionally yeah, a morning yeah. person. Uh, <laughs> and it took about a month to get into that routine. And I'd finish yeah. by about 9, and then I'd drive into my newspaper job. So by Friday afternoon, I was pretty cooked yeah. every week. Yeah. yeah. And you were, so it was kind of like, you that well, this is good, but we're going to have to pick one of these things because I can't, I can't keep going. And I hated to leave it behind because by nine I'd have a good head of steam up and I'd think, yeah, I yeah. Really know where I'm going here. And then, oh, got to go to the newsroom and I've got to put on a new face and I've got to be fresh for that job as well. So it was tough. Yeah. Well, also, this is interesting is that I assume that when you were a foreign correspondent that you I, – I, I'm just guessing that you got this work. You started as a journalist 
kind of fresh out of college, or did you try something else? Else first. Yeah, I started fresh out of college, and I worked for newspapers in North Carolina at the Durham Herald and the Fayetteville yep. Times, and went down to Miami, came back up to Charlotte, and then ended up in Baltimore. Okay, so you so right away, and I'm and so this must have been where you got your writing chops. Like, how do you write a sentence? How do you construct a paragraph? Right, just on right. A, just a very like just getting the bones of that. And there's nothing like doing it every single day on a deadline. I that would must help you figure out how to do that. On a deadline, but where I got my greatest education for, I guess, novelist techniques was uh, in sort of long-form journalism. And Mm. the deeper I got into my career, the more editors would let me take some time where I wasn't necessarily on deadline, but uh, I could could set scenes, I could build characters. Right. It's just the difference being I had to use the raw materials that were in my notebook and out there and provable and... So uh, yeah. you know, I couldn't. Uh, it was kind of hard, in fact, getting used to the idea that I could change things about. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask you. That's the biggie. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. that was it was a bit of a shift there. So. Well, but you must have liked it because you, you have to go from. I have a bunch of journalists, friend, ex, and sometimes ex-journalists, and if they've gone to memoir, it's very hard because they have to use the word I, which they're right. not allowed to do in most journalists. And right. then you got to make stuff up. Uh, if you're going to be a novelist, you got to be, you've got to let your imagine, and you really, you are advised not to make stuff up if you're a journalist, generally yeah, speaking. Strongly advised. <laughs> strongly advised not to make yeah. stuff up if you can. Yes, uh, advised is putting it mildly. And, uh, and also, I think uh, it's interesting you mentioned about the difficulty in, in using I and writing in the first person. Uh, I think I've only had one of my 11 books where part of it was in the first person because ah. I'm still more comfortable writing in the third person. I'm still more comfortable yeah. writing sort of as a an observer, even if it's strongly from one character's point of view. So, so the most recent book, Safe Houses, so I will tell you that part of the reason I interviewed you was, I, you know, books come across, and I was not familiar with your work, but don't, Take offense. I didn't know who Lee no, Child no, was until I right. interviewed him. So that's just <laughs> to give you an idea of how I, what of a bubble I can end up living in. No, but I picked it up because a lot of stuff comes across. So I open it up, and and I don't like to say this because it seems so sort of snobby. But what turned me on about it was the prose, Dan. That was what I, that that got my attention right away because I oh, figured, you. well, you're welcome. But it, I think it, it's worth mentioning because I it, I thought, well, I'm sure he's got a good story. The publisher's a reputable publisher, and blah blah blah, and it looks like a compelling concept, but you've got to live with the writer sentence to sentence to sentence. And yes. for me, if they let me down in a certain way, I kind of, it wears on me and, it's, I, and I have to be able to stick with them. And so I, I found your prose very readable and compelling and original. So whatever it's worth, congrats from me, if that means anything to you. Um, well, it does because, and thank you for that, and it does because I'm the same type of reader. Uh, the first thing I do when I look at a book is I read the first page, and then I look inside and read another couple of pages, and I, I like for the prose itself to move me. I can read about the most, I can read novels about the most boring characters in the world sometimes, and right. I don't care that nothing's happening if the prose right. sweeps me along. I like good storytellers, and uh, I yeah. like the rhythms of the prose and the sound of it and uh in my uh you know in in my mind's ear so to speak but uh, yeah uh, uh yeah so i understand completely what you mean by looking for that prose to capture you 
You know, I was thinking about it recently. I, I, I don't actually think about craft a lot, even though I think about it constantly while I'm writing, but I never teach it. I don't like to, I don't usually teach it that much and I don't like to make too big a deal out of it. And I do think if you want to write, but this has been on my mind lately, you have to be interested in taking what is a three-dimensional, five-sensory experience and translating it into just words. You don't have sound. You don't have smell. Yeah. You yeah. don't have anything moving right. It's just language. And you're taking yeah. a world that is not made of language, mostly, and turning it into language. I happen to find that challenge fascinating. And that's a sentence-to-sentence challenge. Yeah? It is. Because if you do it well, uh, you can actually absorb the reader more than even a good film or television can absorb yes. a viewer because as vivid as it is on the screen, uh, it's one sense and uh, the sound is another, but with the book, you can give them the smell if you do it right. Yeah. Uh, you can yeah. give them uh, lots of other emotions and whatnot, and, and you can give them all five senses on the page if you draw them in deep enough. And for, and for a writer like yourself, who's, do you describe it as it's not really suspense. I called it suspense, but it's really, this is more sort of, it reminds me of like John le Carre or um, how do you yeah. define yourself technically? Is it, is it? Uh, I don't, I define myself kind of book by book because oh, uh, my okay. first book was, my first book, even though it was set in the middle of a war zone, it was pretty much a police procedural. Uh, oh, I've okay. written straight up mysteries. I've written some espionage novels. Uh, right. I've written some suspense novels. It depends on the setting. It depends on the characters. And I don't want to get pigeonholed on any one thing. But this book is, as you said, it's more of an espionage novel kind of wrapped around yeah. a murder mystery. So. Right, right. But it's fascinating. Uh, it also, Dan, I don't know if you, if you meant this, but it seems a little timely given people like uh, – the Me Too movement, actually. I don't yeah, know. Was that intentional? No, that it's accidental? funny how that worked out because I started writing this book uh, two and a half years ago, and I was finished with oh. the first draft probably a year and a half ago before I did revisions, and then you have that eight, nine-month lag after your revisions and before it's published. So, yeah, it caught me by surprise, and it's funny ah. because had I, had I set out to write a book, you know, keying off of that, <laughs> one, right. it wouldn't have come out for another two years, and two, it probably would have been a lot more forced. But uh, it's not like right. this issue has never been. I mean, it's been around no, the, no, for no. ages anyway. It's just now exploded into headlines. But, yeah. And maybe we should – Maybe we should, I'll let you do it, but maybe we should, for, for our readers who haven't had a chance to pick up the book yet, just give them a brief summary of what uh, Safe Houses is about. Yeah, it's about, uh, it's really centered on, it's uh, an event in uh, one day in 1979 in the Cold War when a woman who, uh, who would prefer to be a spy, an operative for the CIA, has been sort of pigeonholed as, a glorified clerical worker, and so she's administering safe houses in West Berlin for the CIA. And she's out checking on one of her properties when she stumbles across a conversation going on downstairs that she should not have heard, and she's very puzzled by it. And that evening when she goes back to try to undo some of the damage she may have done by hearing it, uh, she is witness to another event, which is pretty horrific, completely different, involving a sexual assault of uh, a young local German agent by her case officer who works for the CIA. So on that track, we have 
Helen Abel, uh, who runs these safe houses, trying to get to the bottom of things on both tracks, sometimes focusing on one more than the other, and jeopardizing her whole career and at times her life to try to find out what's going on. And on the other track, we have 35 years later, her daughter uh, trying to figure out what has happened to uh, her brother who has killed both his parents. Right. Uh, sort of a, a bit of a simple-minded, easygoing, innocent young man who's 24, very intellectually uh, stunted. Sort of challenged, yeah. Yeah, and, and she's trying to figure out how this could have happened, and she knows nothing about her mother's past with the CIA because uh, yeah. it just wasn't anything that came up. And those two periods, we go back and forth between those two periods, and we learn more about uh, each of those we, we we learn more. Uh, we learn a little bit about each of the other periods from the other perspective, and right. uh, we have moments where we find out something about 1979 from the present day, and we have moments where we find out about things that are happening in the present day when we learn something in 1979. So it's one of those interwoven tales that goes back and forth between two eras and two generations. Yeah, and you did it really well. It was very engrossing. Uh, I, you know, that's a, it's a, can be a tricky device. I thought you handled it really well. And as I was reading it, uh, uh, turning pages, turning pages, turning pages. But, but then the writer in me was going, okay, where did this start? What did he start with? What was the kernel? What was the way in? Because sometimes it's obvious to me. It was not obvious to me with this. I couldn't figure out where you began. Do you remember how you st- where it started for you? What was the first you know, thing that drew you to this story? It's funny you mention that because with my previous ten books, I can give you almost exactly the uh, genesis, right? What moment, what what I read or what I saw yeah, that yeah. made me think, oh, here's where we start. Where does this lead? Yeah. With this book, it was three or four different things uh, that that all kind of came together. I read an old news account of a CIA station chief in Africa who was charged with a couple of rapes at his house. Mm -hmm. And that made me think about, wow, that would be a sensitive thing, and what a violation of trust and a business where trust is everything. Yeah. And uh, there were – I also uh, came across some old notes from an old research interview I'd done for a TV project, which still hasn't gone anywhere yet, but uh, <laughs> with with a woman who worked for the OSS and then the CIA, where, and, she talked, and I, she talked about how when she was with the OSS during the Second World War, uh, all her male colleagues took her work very seriously because they were all on the same mission, and uh, she right. got some challenging assignments. And later, when, when she went back to work at CIA headquarters in 1959, 1960, the whole attitude had changed, and it was very dismissive toward uh, women. Weird. She was treated, as a, treated sort of as a glorified secretary and could never kind of shake that. Wow, they- yeah, wow. and so uh, and that was kind of the beginning of the madman, you know, madman era too, where there was a lot more dismissive yeah, yeah. toward yeah. women yeah. in the workplace in general, and that plus a couple of other threads, and they they all kind of came together, and uh, it I don't know, it was odd, it uh, built itself kind of piece by piece. Well, I think it paid off because it's a it's a book with a lot of layers to it. The sort of the interesting part of the the the, the storyline that takes place in sort of modern day is very intriguing, and there's a great mystery around that. So uh, I thought it was great. I thought you you handled a, a big story very well, and very much enjoyed. I recommend it to you readers who like a good, well written, sophisticated page turner because that's what it is. Oh, um, thank you. So all right, so we got I got a little bit more time with you, not much. Uh, 
let's see, are you going to, so you said you're almost done with the book tour. This thing came out in July, so you're kind of at the yeah. end of that. If, uh, are, are you going to, you said you have one more event coming up in the, in the Baltimore area? I've got an event coming up this Thursday in uh, 7 o'clock at Greedy Reads, which is a great new independent right. bookstore in Fells Point in Baltimore. So uh, it's, okay. it's done well, and people there are really supporting that store, so that's good to see. All right, so you'll go do that reading. People can, and if people want to check you out, is it? I can't. I, I've been to your website. I don't remember. Is it Dan just DanFesperman dot com or is it something that's different? It. That's all right, DanFesperman.com. Uh, exactly. All right, good. So you can all check it out there. But then I assume you'll do your reading, and then it's back into the cave with you to finish the next book, or is it already yep. done? Sometimes that happens. No. I'm about a hundred pages in, so it's moving along. Oh, you're just a, just starting. We mustn't. We mustn't talk about it. We mustn't that's right. even. Speak its name. It would only curse you. Okay. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Well, Dan, listen, it's been a great conversation, but I got one more question for you. And so what I'd like you to do is finish the sentence for me. If writing has taught you anything, it's taught you what? Perseverance. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Do you, you didn't have perseverance when you were a journalist? But not I as did, much as you do now? It's a different type. Uh, you really have to stay the course in writing. And yeah. uh, journalism, you know that, uh, you know, if it's a tough story, you're going to have a new one in a day or two. And so right. you, you can dispense with it and move on. But uh, books, you know, you got to persevere. Yeah. You got no one but yourself, do you? It's just you and this idea. Yep. And you got to, oh, yeah. Well, well that's it. That is a common answer and for good reason. Well, Dan, it's a great book. Congratulations. The name of it is Safe Houses. Where all fine books are sold. Uh, Dan, thanks for coming on the show, friend. That was great. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Bill. My pleasure indeed. Uh, all perseverance. Perseverance, people. Stay with it. Stay with it. Listen, I don't say this often enough, but i got to thank my fabulous producer, R.J. Jeffries. He's here every show. He, sometimes he shows up and you hear from him. Sometimes you don't. But he's always there. He's always helping out. He's always supporting it. It makes this job of mine so much easier. Thank you, RJ. You're awesome. And to all of you out there listening, go find something you love and persevere at it. Persevere because you won't, you won't regret it. I promise you. 